The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. All right, Nehemiah 8, if you would. As you're turning there, just to kind of give you an idea of where we're at, um, you know, I... Originally, in laying out this, this Hearts Ablaze series, I thought we'd be out of it by now, but the Holy Spirit keeps messing with me, and so you're getting messed with. Uh, and so we're going we're gonna to be in Nehemiah today. The background of the book of Nehemiah, in, in the original manuscripts of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah were actually combined. Uh, there's good reason to separate them. That's okay. It doesn't really affect anything. But just so that you know, uh, there's kind of a, to put you in the timeline of God's plan of redemption and the whole history, the people of Israel have been, have been exiled to Babylon as a result of their rebellion. Uh, they're gone for some time, and then uh, there's a leader first that rises up. His name is Zerubbabel. He goes back and, and begins to attempt to kind of rebuild the temple and have some spiritual renewal happening in the land of Israel, Jerusalem in particular. Things don't go totally great, and then uh, Ezra comes in sometime later, works on rebuilding the temple, has more success than Zerubbabel did, and then down the line from there, uh, there's also a power change along the way. Now we have the Persians in power, and then King Artaxerxes, uh, Nehemiah is is a a cupbearer for him, he's right in his presence, and and Nehemiah's uh, got a sad face one day, and the king asks him, What's going on, man? And, and basically the Lord had been troubling him about the condition of Jerusalem, the city of God, the walls being destroyed. And so there's exiles trying to live there and kind of scrape out an existence, but it's dangerous because, you know, we're in a time frame where people run around in large groups with swords and, and, and fight each other, right? So, you know, walls are important in that context. And so, uh, and, and just even what it represented about God's people and God's land and all of that. So that's that's kind of where we're at in, in the timeline. That's what's going on in the book of Nehemiah, okay? So let's, uh, in a case, I guess I should do this, sorry. If you haven't been here, this whole premise of this Hearts Ablaze series, we started in Luke 24, and there's this account of two disciples walking along the road to Emmaus. Jesus joins them. They don't know it's him at first. They're kind of talking about everything that's just happened, that being the crucifixion of Christ and all that, and they're, they're sad and kind of mopey. And Jesus is like, hey, what's going on? And they're, they're kind of smart aleck to him. And, and then he's like, look, guys, let me, let me help you with something. And basically he busts out what I think is probably the coolest Bible study that's ever happened. It says that he took them then to the scriptures, which in that point would have been the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, that's what was assembled. Took them there and showed them himself in them. Right? And then the comment of these disciples later, once they realized it was Jesus talking to them, was like, did our hearts not burn within us as he explained the scriptures to us on the road? And so this, is, this represents a paradigm shift in, in the way people understood what God was doing in the world totally. As you begin to look at what had happened thus far up before Jesus' coming, as you begin to see that all as a part of God's big plan of redemption, it, it changes everything. And so we've been... That Bible study had that effect on those guys. Going into God's word with Christ himself leading them, right? It set them on fire with passion to the point that as soon as they realized it was Jesus that had led them on that Bible study, these brothers hop up from the table and run back to Jerusalem and start telling people, 
Amen. The Lord, the Lord, let's, let me tell you all the stuff the Lord just showed us that we've been missing in his scripture, right? Like, wow. Amen. And so there's this, there's this excitement that comes with it, this passion that comes, and it came from him taking them to the word of God. And, and the basic premise of this entire series is the word of God has the same power today as it did then. It should have the same effect in our hearts as it did theirs. And you may say, well, yes, Pastor Vince, but you're not Jesus. So I'm, I don't know if I'm going to get as excited as those guys did on the road to Emmaus. I'm so glad you know I'm not Jesus. Keep that at the forefront of your mind. Very important. I'm not him. But we do have the Holy Spirit. The very Spirit of Christ helps us go into these scriptures and have the same kind of guidance those guys did with Jesus himself on the road. That's, see, Jesus is brilliant. The Father's brilliant. He's got, a, he's got a better plan than sending Jesus back to walk with lots of people along the road and, to, and share them the scriptures. God's plan was to send the Holy Spirit to live in all of us so that simultaneously throughout the world, he can be leading us into this kind of passion-filled living in light of Christ's gospel and the truth of his word. Amen? All right. So that's why we're here. That's what we're doing. We're in, we're in Ezra, sorry, Nehemiah uh, chapter 8. And before I read this, no, let's just read it. Okay. Nehemiah 8, we're going to look at verses 1 through 12. And all the people gathered as one man at the square which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square, which is in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday. In the presence of men and women, those who could understand, all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah and Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah, and on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadana. I dare any of you to name your kid that. Hashbadana. Haven't seen that on the Christian baby name list. Hashbadana. All right, Zechariah and Meshulam on his left hand. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akab, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, there's two of those, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Praise God for his word. Amen. Now, one premise that we haven't dug into much 
throughout this uh, series is that a heart ablaze that we've been talking about, it, we, we've talked about it, it creating a, a love-motivated passion in service to God and service to others, and it is all of that, but in, in another way, that, that heart ablaze, it acts like a, a refiner's fire. In the book of Malachi, God's presence is talked about like that, and what, is, what does that mean? A refiner's fire is, if you think of your heart, in, in all throughout the Bible, it's, it's compared to a container of sorts. If you think of it as a crucible, that's the implement in which you'd put metal and, and raw ore, and it's got impurities in it, and then you, you put it in this crucible, and that crucible is then heated to the degree that the raw metal and the, the impurities begin to separate, and the impurities rise to the top, and they keep being skimmed off. Interestingly enough, a, a silversmith, you may have heard this before, if, if trying to figure out, is the silver at the point of being purified? To where it's now usable for jewelry or whatever it is that they're trying to do, a silversmith will, will be looking at that molten silver in the crucible, and once they can see their reflection in it, they know that it's been purified. If we translate that to the idea of what God is doing with us, making us into the image of Christ, we see that the analogy goes perhaps deeper than what is apparent on the surface. But we've been talking about now for weeks, kind of different hurdles. We've called them wet blankets even from the past and from the present, the future. Things that would try to snuff out a heart ablaze full of passion and love for God. But today I want us to think about, talk about how a, a lukewarm heart, in, in contrast to a heart that is ablaze with passion, is a breeding ground for all kinds of nasty stuff. I want to remind you that Jesus had a warning for one of the churches in Revelation, and it's, it's a bit odd if you really think about it. He said, don't be cold, or don't be lukewarm. He said, be cold or, or hot, don't be lukewarm. It's like, hold on a minute. Wouldn't, like, lukewarm's better than cold, right? But if, I mean, even just think about like, the way bacteria and nasty stuff grows. What, 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 what temperature of water does that want? That lukewarm water, right? You get really frigid, freezing cold water. There's a lot of microorganism stuff can't live in that. You get real, real hot water, that's, that's going to kill them off. It's that, middle, it's that middle ground of like, well, it's kind of right. That's real dangerous, according to the Lord Jesus. Have you thought about much lately what a lukewarm heart might look like? How easy it is to slide into a position of being lukewarm. The tenacity of Christ's warning about that is, he said, be hot or cold, don't be lukewarm, because I'll spit you out of my mouth. That, you know, that's, that has my attention. Does that get your attention? I mean, when my master talks like that, it's like, okay, yes, sir. What, what, what does that mean? Let me respond to that humbly. Amen. Okay, so what I want to look at is the, the premise being here, why are we in Nehemiah 8? This is widely understood to be a, a moment in redemptive history of incredible spiritual renewal. Some may, some may even call it a revival. And what is going on here? What, what, what is happening in, in, in the quickening and the igniting of these people's heart with passion? What do we, what do we see? And, and what can it tell us about uh, even the, the opposite side of that? What do we see present here that, that would, because their hearts are ablaze, it's keeping away some, some things. It's, it's maybe killing some things that could, that could thrive in a, in a more lukewarm environment. So Look at verse one. The first thing I want to call your attention to, it says, 
And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which is in front of the water gate. All the people gathered as one man. That's a big deal. That's pretty incredible language. It, I, I hear an echo there, or, or it's, it's a forward shouting echo to the prayer of my master in John 17. The high priestly prayer where a large part of his focus right before he went to the cross was praying to the father that you and I and all people who have named the name of Christ, who have bowed their knee to him as savior, that we would be in unity with one another in the same way that Christ and the father are in unity. So one of the great things that does is much like the call to be holy as he is holy, it sets a bar for us that makes sure we're never bored in the Christian life, right? The unity bar has been set at, you and I need to walk in unity. The, the, the prayer of my, of my master, your master, is that we would operate in the kind of unity that the father and son operate in. Are we there yet? No, <laughs> nope. Are we going to get there this side of eternity? Nope. But it does keep us in a place of continuing to strive. It does keep us in a place of humility before God, knowing this is, never, this is something I'm not going to get anywhere close to accomplishing on my own. This is another way in which I am consistently reminded of my great need for God, which is a major theme of the scriptures and the, the whole thing we're doing here. Okay, And so this, this one man idea, right? So, and what it takes for for unity to happen, which you can't have then, and what tends to breed in a, in a more lukewarm environment are things like pride and strife and offenses. And, and one thing I think we should, we should realize about ourselves to, to help in assessing where we stand here, I'm not sure how you think about this, but we need to know this about ourselves. We need to have a clear-eyed look at, at, at who and what we are as, as humans. We are not peacemakers by nature. Peacemaking is not our natural bend. And some of you may instantly think, well, and you, first of all, you may say, oh, I don't know if I believe that. Okay, well, let's start here. Find me a decade in recorded human history where big groups of us weren't killing each other with whatever weapons we had available. I'll wait. <laughs> It'll be a bit. You're not going to find one. You might say, oh, well, yes, but, Pastor Vince, you don't, you know, thinking deep enough about it, that's, you know, that gets to power structures and governments, and of course, that, you know, once there's power structures and things like that, well, that's corrupt, and yes, then, then of course there's conflict. Uh, but, you know, as individuals, we can, you know, we can be peacemakers. And I, I would just, I would call your attention to Cain and Abel. Uh, we didn't make it very far in the whole human story before a brother picked up a rock and killed his brother out of jealousy. <laughs> okay, so now, and you may say, well, I can't, I can't relate to that. Well, okay, but, and, and maybe, maybe you're right at one level. You, you, might, you might be saying, okay, well, yeah, I hear all that, Pastor Vince, but you're wrong, you're wrong, because I hate, I hate conflict. I hate conflict. I'll stay out of conflict, whatever the cost. I'm like, okay. But here's the problem with that. We need to not only acknowledge the call to be peacemakers, but we, make sure, we gotta make sure we don't misunderstand peace from a biblical perspective because peace is far more than just a lack of conflict. Wrapped up in the idea of biblical peace is, is that Hebrew word shalom. It's, it's wholeness, it's rightness, it's, it's 
things functioning as they should, right? So the peace of God is not just ignoring people we don't like or that annoy us or whatever and then feeling very holy about it. Oh, somebody thought they were going to get to stand over there and the ha ha, I've never been in conflict in my whole life because I avoid it and he's wrong, ha ha ha. No, you wrong. You don't understand biblical peace. Maybe. Because it's, it's more than just you being able to stay out of arguments. Maybe you're a great at avoidance, but there's, when Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, he didn't say, blessed are the conflict avoiders. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. There's an action to that. that I'm, I'm, I got to get in here and make, we need intentionality. We, we, we got to do something here. There, some, you you want to hear an oxymoron? It'll sound like it. You got to fight for peace. Why? Well, first of all, because we're jacked up. Can, can you say that and be honest? I'm jacked up. Amen. And there's also an enemy who hates us and hates God and hates peace and hates unity and all of the things that can be accomplished for the glory of God when it's operating properly. So sometimes you got to fight for it. The peace of God and the unity he desires for us means we are working together for God's glory and the furthering of his kingdom. Why is everyone gathered here at the Watergate to listen to Ezra read the word? They just got finished, took them 52 days to come back from exile, a big group of them, and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They're gathered together celebrating the fact that they did something for God's kingdom. This ain't just a let's get together and, and feel good meeting. Man, they, they got together and, and navigated all of the personalities of everybody involved in the thing, all the, figure out who's a chief, who's an Indian, how are we going to do this, what's going to happen, what has to be done, and they pulled off what basically to those around them looked like a miracle because the walls had sat in shambles for a long time. They were doing something. The peace of God, what am I saying? The peace of God and the unity he desires for us means we're working together for God's glory and the furthering of his kingdom, which, of course, leads to the greatest good for us. I, I realize the dot may not connect easily for you between those two things, but what I'm saying is it needs to. We should think about it until it does. We should ask God to help us with illumination and understanding. There's, all, there's so many more things I could say about that, unpack, give examples and all of that. And, you know, but I, the Apostle Paul does such a good job in Romans 12. I'm just going to read him. I'm just going to read the inspired words of the Apostle Paul along these lines in Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you. Therefore, I suggest if you want to. That's how we read it sometimes, is it? Can we be honest? Well, if, if you'd like. No, no, man. I urge you, brethren, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Lots of people know that verse. And they can get down with that. Yes, yep, I do want to do that. But, but when it gets down to what does it mean, right? Because walking in peace and love and unity and all that sounds very good when it's, when it's, an, when it's, an, it's an idea out here in the abstract. Yeah, yes. We should do that. Definitely other people should do that, right? But when it comes down to the, the reality of it, man, this is, it's, 
we need miracle level intervention in God's help. Because this is serious. Verse two, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Okay, that's a, that's a big general call there. What does that mean? I'm glad you asked. He's gonna get specific. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many parts in one body, and all the body's parts do not have the same function, so we who are many are one, in, are one body in Christ and individually parts of one another. However, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to use them properly. If, prop, if prophecy proportion in proportion to one's faith, if, if service in the act of serving or the one who teaches in the act of teaching or the one who exhorts in the work of exhortation, the one who gives with generosity, the one who is in leadership with diligence, the one who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Love must be free of hypocrisy, detest what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. I told you he did a better job than I could have. He's not done. Bless those who persecute you. Ah, Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never repay evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all people. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Never take your own vengeance, beloved. But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen to that. That's all I got to say about it. The next thing I see in verse 1 all the people gathered as one. You guys are so nervous. And verse one had a lot. It's okay. We're going to be all right. At the square, which is in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. The people are all gathered. They asked Ezra. I find it super interesting that this book, this chapter doesn't start out with, and Ezra got behind the wooden podium and really tried to encourage all the people to want to come and hear the book of the law read. Do you find that interesting? I find it super interesting. Something about hearts being ablaze, the people said, yo, priest, Ezra, bro, get the book. Let's read the book of the law. And you know what that is. That's the Pentateuch. That's the first five books written by Moses. Genesis is pretty interesting. Exodus is pretty interesting. You, you read Leviticus? about numbers now part of what I'm hoping is through this series the next time you read Leviticus and Numbers is going to be different for you and some of what we're going to talk about today is is, is going to help with that but there's no way they could have known in this time what we're able to see now as a result of more of redemptive history unfolding but uh, the point is they asked and so 
What am, I, what am I talking about here? Well, I'm talking about, again, lukewarm hearts, not blazing with fire and passion. They're a breeding ground for distraction and worldly desires. Why, why do we have this happening right here, right there? Because they had an appetite for the word. Nobody had to run around and, and try to coax them to care about the word of God. Ezra wasn't running around saying, hey guys, I, I know you're busy doing all the stuff you're doing, but, but what about God's word? Shouldn't we, care, shouldn't we prioritize God, God's word? What, what about getting together and, and us studying this together? No, man, the people got together. I, I can't wait for the day that you guys demand or riot that we have an extra service and more Bible study. Pastor Vince, we're going to show up at your house with pitchforks, man. Get the book. And I won't fight too hard, <laughs> promise. I'll be out there. But distractions and worldly appetites, they breed in a lukewarm heart. And that's oftentimes why we don't have an appetite for the word that we see exemplified here in the people in Nehemiah 8. Now, I grant you, there, there's a supernatural work of God happening among these people in this time. It's not like the people of God were consistently in this place, right? They, they came back here out of exile because of their rebellion against God. I get, I get all of that, but I'm just talking about, I'm talking about an ideal here, and I'm talking about the fact that we now sit in a place on the timeline that we have the fullness of Christ's gospel laid out for us. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the, 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 this, this great and final gift for this, this great and, and, and final section of God's plan of redemption, we're living in the church age, friends. We're living in the age where we get to go and preach the fullness of God's gospel to a world that is broken and needs it. What is there not to be excited about? <laughs> right? But let's be honest. Distractions and, and worldly appetites do come in. They're, they're, our hearts, it's been famously said, are, are like idol factories. What I'm trying to tell you is a heart ablaze burns them idols and they go up and smoke. And what's left is pure. <laughs> what's left is what God desires to be residing in your heart, which is his presence, love for him and love for people, which will motivate us to all of the right things that scripture calls us to. And will keep us away from the things that scripture calls us out of. Amen. Now we can go to verse two. <laughs> I know it's so scary, it's all right. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen. All who could listen. All who could listen were there. I find it interesting as well. What we don't see, what, what else breeds in a lukewarm heart? Divisions and factions, for sure. But we don't see that here. We see men and women together. How many of you have enough of a, a, an eye to, to see and understand in our cultural moment, the forces of darkness want men and women to hate each other and be against each other. You understand that that's true? Satan's got a plan. He doesn't want us working together. He wants to see each other as enemies instead of co-laborers in the fields of our master. He wants us to be suspicious of one another. What do we see here? We don't see age distinctions. They didn't have a kids section and teenage section and adult section and then, and then everyone, you know, the, all the seasoned saints over here, no man, everyone gathered at the water. They were all in there together. There was, there was no division. Nobody got held out. There wasn't generational division. 
There wasn't, they didn't separate by denomination. Well, we got, we got the ones that kind of think this kind of stuff and this kind of stuff. You don't see any of it. Everyone was there, gathered as what? One man with a purpose. What was their purpose? We're celebrating the goodness of what God has done and restoring the walls of Jerusalem and using us to do it. And we want to, we want to read the word of the law, Ezra. Get the book. Unity around things greater than themselves, greater than their preferences, greater than fill in the blank, all of the dumb stuff that ends up dividing us, which it really is oftentimes just so ignorant. They didn't line up here. There, there wasn't, they didn't sell tickets to this thing and, and the rich people got to the front and the poor people in the back. Does it say anything about that in here? Did I miss something? Or was everybody in there all together as what? One man. Amen. There's a lot there. I don't know if you're getting it. It don't sound like you're getting it. We'll get there in a second. It's all right. Hold on. Verse three. Whoa, we got out of two already. Look at that. Verse three. He read from it before the square, which is in front of the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women. Those who could understand, all the people were attentive to the book. They were attentive to the book of the law. What did he read? It says from early morning to midday. You look at, you look at really what that's saying is like from first light to midday. We're talking about at least four, four hours, probably six hours. For six hours, Ezra stood at the wood podium and did what? Read the book of the law. And what does it say the people were? Attentive to the book of law. What, what are you doing, Pastor Vince? I'm, 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 we're continuing in a series called Hearts Ablaze, and, and we've been talking about all these implications and, and, and all of these hurdles to it. Part of what I want to do is just paint a picture for you today, what I, what I actually mean. What I, this section of Scripture in Nehemiah 8 is part of what's wrong with me, if you've wondered. It, it, it is, because this sets an expectation for me of what it looks like when people are passionate for what God is doing, for his word, for his name's sake, for his glory. For six hours, my man's up there reading the Pentateuch and they're attentive. I can't really tell. It seems like they might have been standing the whole time. So what's another, what's another uh, nasty thing that tends to breed in a lukewarm heart? Well, it's an idol of comfort, friends. It's an idol of preference. It's an idol of an inability or a total lack of desire to sacrifice something for the sake of others, for the sake of Christ's gospel, for the furthering of his kingdom? Man, we talk, we talk so much like comfort in this life is, is a foregone conclusion, like it's some inalienable right. Like who told us that? Now, do I think we need to seek out pain and discomfort? No, there's plenty of that in a broken world. We don't need to look for it. You're going to get plenty of that. But man, be careful. <laughs> be careful of this, this idea that if, that if I'm, I'm not comfortable, I need, to, I need to move towards something until I find where I, I feel comfortable. Not, no, not necessarily. Comfort. An idol of comfort grows in a lukewarm heart. What else? Let's look at verse 6. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. All the people answered, amen, amen, while lifting up their hands. They and then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord, their faces to the ground. Something else that breathes in a lukewarm heart is complacency and familiarity. 
complacency and familiarity. You, you see, as Ezra's blessing the Lord and he's praying, there's, there's a response from the people, right? And it's, it's funny because very recently, uh, a pastor friend of mine, he was, he was ribbing me in a good-natured way. Uh, I didn't take offense to this at all, and I, and I still don't. But he said, yeah, man, uh, you, you amen yourself a lot. Okay? I'm like, all right, I hear you. That's, okay, that's funny. I hear you. But let me, so maybe you've thought that. So let me just say this. I, wanna, I just want to be really clear. I'm not trying to defend myself. I don't feel like I need to. I feel, I feel great about all of this. No insecurity whatsoever about it promise. But I just want to say this. I want you to understand. I was a youth pastor for eight years. Okay. So what does that mean? What that means is I don't even need you here (laughs) to do this. Don't take that the wrong way. I can go out here and find a stump and preach to it. Okay. God has gifted me to teach the scriptures. I can go out in the forest and preach for three hours. I don't need an amen. I don't need anybody to hear. I don't care. So when I'm, when I'm ribbing you, man, when I'm, when I'm going, when I'm trying to teach the church, like that was a spot where if you were listening and you care one iota about this, you may, you may have had at least a, a grunt, something, right? When, when I'm trying to, tra- that's, that's for you, that's not for me. I don't need you to amen to feel encouraged about what I'm doing, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm, look, if you preach to teenagers for eight years, you ain't looking for that. You understand what I'm saying? That's why I brought up that. They ain't doing it, okay, for the most part. So that's, that's how I cut my teeth and learned how to teach the Bible was teenagers. So I don't, I don't need that in some kind of self-affirmation way, but I do think you need it. I do think you need it. And that's, and that's where some of you, and look, I'm, look, I'm just going in today. So just buckle up. Some of you will say, well, I'm just reserved. Okay. That's fine. Yes. Some of you are. Some of you are less likely to be vocal in any situation, but here is what I will 100% guarantee you. There is something that would get a verbal out of you. Something, and I'm not saying an amen, but some, there's something somewhere that if it happened, there'd be a woo. There'd be, some, there'd be some kind of reaction out of you, at least a grunt, a little something. And, and I could go into all the examples. It could be, you know, Someone hands you the keys to your dream house, your dream car. Somebody hands you the acceptance to the, your dream college, your dream job, whatever. It, it could be your, your dream spouse walking up and saying, marry me. There's, it could be all these kind of things. And I'm not saying any of these things are necessarily wrong. But if any of the, if there's anything in this world, man, that could get you to, woo, I'm excited about that. I mean, in lesser kind of sad examples, it could be, or I get to meet my favorite musician, my favorite actor, my favorite sports person. What, I mean, how, how, what, what would get you all shook up enough? If anything can, God's word should. And you can, you can like that, hate it. I, I mean, I can't do anything about it. That, it is what it is. If, I mean... This is just a genuine offer, man. If you, if, if you think that's going too far or something you want to talk about, it, I'd be happy to have a conversation. And I'll be nice, I promise. I mean, I, I am nice the vast majority of the time. So, um, amen. All right, let's, <laughs> let's keep moving. I don't need you to say amen, but I'm gonna keep trying to get you to do it. For you. For you. 
Because I, I believe God's word is powerful. And I believe if you're really engaged with the teaching of God, God's word, it's, it's going to mess with you. There's going to be excitement about what it is that we're seeing him say to us. Amen. All right. And familiarity, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to leave that one at that. We'll, we'll stay at complacency because I got to get to this thing at the end that I'm telling you is, <laughs> whoo, it's so good. So when, when, when those things, so what we've been talking about is a bunch of things that can breed in a lukewarm heart. Why do we want a heart ablaze? Because a lukewarm heart is a Petri dish <laughs> for darkness and nastiness. That's, that's kind of the premise. That's, we're coming at it from a different angle today. All right. So when those burn away, what is left? Let's look at verse nine. We got a cruise here. You guys, you guys, you're not going fast enough. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and the scribe, the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. Look, I took, I took my Bible out today. I was looking through some stuff and left it on the counter. I'm in this thing, man. The print is no good in this right here if you're trying to read up here. So I'm struggling a little bit in case you noticed. Amen. What verse am I even on now? Where are we at? Nine. There it is. Whew. It might be glasses time soon, y'all. It might be happening. <laughs> Anybody wants to run, run a large print NASB up here and help the, help the pastor out? That's fine. All right. I'm just kidding. Stay where you're at. Then Nehemiah, who's the governor. So what did they say? This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. They were weeping when they heard the words of the law. When all this nasty stuff, when, when, when the heart is the crucible that it's meant to be, a blazing fire full of passion and love for God, and it burns all that nasty out, what is left? Well, humility and conviction will be one thing that stays there as a pure. That's, that's some of the pure stuff that God wants to stay in there when all the junk burns off. Humility and conviction. Again, as it wasn't, look, man, there's nothing here about Ezra being some really good orator that, that you know, had a bunch of really funny examples and stuff. They, 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 they were reading from the book of the law and he was interpreting it to make sure they understood what was in the book of the law. That was what was happening. And there is humility. There is conviction. There is a response to the fact that what we're hearing God's standard is we're not living up to. They hadn't got used to it. It hadn't become familiar to them. It wasn't like how they treated Jesus in his hometown where they just kind of disregarded him because it was, it was familiar. We can do that to the word of God. We can even do that to the spirit of God, friends. Guard against that. Be aware of it. And know that when our hearts are on fire with passion, it doesn't, it doesn't leave uh, complacency and familiarity and that gross stuff. It just, it can't live in that environment, but humility and conviction can. And that's, I, I don't want the word of God to, to be able to be writ, read in my presence. I don't want to be able to go into God's word and it just be like I'm, any other thing I'm doing. It shouldn't be. These are the very living words of God. They got power. So that's left in the crucible. No matter how hot it gets, man, humility and conviction is going to stay in there. Those are pure. That's pure gold that stays. That's silver, man. Amen. So let's look at verse 10. Then he said to them, go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, send portions to him who has nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. So what else is, is left when, when, when that thing's hot and all the junk burns off? You've got enjoyment and acknowledgement of God's faithful provision. First of all, what did they say? Look, man, all right, 
Stop weeping. Let's, en- let's enjoy the faithfulness of God. That's part of what the, the, you know, the Feast of Booths was about, which is, it's about to talk about, and we're going to get into that in a second. And I'm going to have to go so much faster than I wanted to, but I got to show this to you. So the Feast of Booths, which, which is what this is going to lead into next, that was, God instituted that to remind them of the fact that when they were in the wilderness, God brings them out of Egypt, and when they're in the wilderness, they had to live in little, like, movable shacks, Feast of Booths. Those were, that's what they're talking about, like little tents. And it was to remind them of all of God's provision in the wilderness, okay? So one thing we see that is, that is there in a heart ablaze is enjoyment and acknowledgement of God's faithful provision and also what always comes with that is generosity. They didn't just say, you guys go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, but prepare some, take some to those that have none. Those will always go together. Amen. Okay, thirdly, what will be left? I, I, would, I would just simply say the gospel will always be there. Look at verses 11 and 12 with me. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be still for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions and to celebrate a great festival because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Friends, what what was their first reaction? They're weeping as they realize they're not lining up with God's standard. And the word is meant to act as a mirror. Yes, the book of James says that. It is meant to show us how ugly our sin has made us. But the point of that is not just to keep staring at ourselves and weep forever over how ugly we are, okay? It's to help us see how incredibly beautiful God is in comparison. The whole point is that the bad news should make us look for good news outside of ourselves. When the the word acts as a mirror and shows me how jacked up I am compared to God's perfect holiness, what what, what I'm not meant to do is just stare into that harder and get sadder. It's it's like, ooh, I'm not going to find the answer here. Where am I going to find it? It's to cause me to look to him. And in that contrast, I'm overwhelmed again at how much more beautiful he is than me. Perfect and holy and majesty. The whole point is the bad news should make us look for good news outside of ourselves. The gospel belongs in here, in this crucible, of just absolutely on fire with passion for God. And that, of course, leads us back to the total reframing of reality that Jesus would have been doing for those boys on the road to Emmaus I explained to you earlier. Those guys were focused on temporal issues. They were focused on Roman occupation and they thought the Messiah was gonna come and deliver them from the problems on kind of the earthly plane, but Jesus came to solve the eternal problem. That's what they hadn't understood yet, but that's what, he's, that's what he came to tell them. And guys, this is part of why Christianity is so wild because we genuinely believe in eternal spiritual realities. And what that means is that that someone who is a slave in this world can, can be infinitely, they can have infinitely more freedom. I mean, I'm saying infinitely on purpose. Infinitely more freedom than those who enslave them. Based on what we believe, you can have someone in the most desperate situation of being a slave on this earth, and yet the spiritual reality is they could have more freedom than even the ones that enslave them. That's wild. That's up, it's so upside down but it's precious. What is, what is the bottom line? The problem with the world, friends, is sin, and the solution is Jesus. 
That's the bottom line there. And we see that. <clears throat> now, maybe you haven't had your heart set ablaze yet as, as we've mined the Old Testament for, for gems and, and, and forward-looking gospel truth over these last weeks, but I let me show you something. Because if it, ha- if it hasn't hit you yet, man, <laughs> this, this is cool. I'm, I'm talking about the intricacy, man, of God's plan of redemption. I'm talking about the little details, the little things that he, that he did that we could miss so easily. It's, and it's beautiful. So, but this, look, this one, you, you're, gonna, you're gonna need to hold your pickaxe for a minute and you gotta work with me, okay? You have to think a minute, all right? This one, there's a little bit of, a few dots that connect, but if you'll hold it and get there with me, I promise you, this is precious, okay? Now, the first thing I want you to know is the, the Feast of Booths, okay? The very next thing that happens in this story in Nehemiah 8 is, so everything we just read, the next day, they realize that back in Leviticus, God had said, do this Feast of Booths in the seventh month every year to remind you of my provision in the wilderness. So at this point, in Nehemiah 8, they're back in the word, right? And they realize, ooh, we ain't been doing that. So they do it, all right? So that's, that's the next thing that happens, all right? Now, the Feast of Booths, it was sometimes, by, by the first century when Jesus showed up, it was sometimes just called the feast because it was, it, it was such a big deal, okay? It, this, this was a huge deal for first century Jews. As I said, God instituted it in Leviticus, um, I'm sure many of you that really enjoy tent camping uh, now are going to feel holier, right? Because that's basically what it was, what they're doing uh, to, to celebrate God's faithfulness. Um, I don't like camping in tents, but I don't know what that says about me. Uh, but there was, there, was a couple, there was a couple rituals that by the time, this is important, by the time Jesus was on the scene in the first century, what did the Feast of Booths look like? Okay, well, most of that was, it was centered around the temple, Okay, the, the, the temple was a focal point. Now remember, the temple in that time was the replacement of the tabernacle, which was a tent that moved around in the wilderness with the people as they went around. Then, then David wanted to build a temple, a, a permanent spot for God's presence to dwell. David didn't get to do it. Solomon did, okay? Now, <clears throat> there was, by the time Jesus came on the scene in the first century, there was a couple rituals that happened during the, feast, the celebration of the Feast of Booths, the week, kind of week-long celebration, okay? Well, the first was this. It was known as a water ritual or almost like a water party. People were very joyous around this, this event that would happen in the Feast of Booths. They would take a golden pitcher and they would go and they would, to the, they would draw water from the Pool of Siloam. That's an important detail. So say it back to me, Love City. Where did they get the water in the golden pitcher during the Feast of Booths? The Pool of Siloam. Keep that, okay? Lock that one in. I told you there's some dots here. And so they, they take the water from the Pool of Siloam and then they parade to the temple. So there's a procession, all right? This is, this is a part of the, the pageantry of the thing. And, and all the people, okay? So it'd be the priests, it'd be important people carrying the water, what, whatever. But all the people, they would be reciting Isaiah 12, 3 which is therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. People would be singing and dancing and rejoicing all around this. It's, it's a big deal as they move this water from the pool of Siloam to the temple. And they would pour it out on the altar along with wine and they'd be praying for rain and uh, God's, provi- you know, God's continued provision, okay? So that's, that's what would happen there. And, <clears throat> and remember, 
If the Feast of Booths is commemorating God's provision in the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt, then what's the water about, right? All these people go out in the desert. What's one of the things they need to survive that God's going to have to provide if all his people aren't going to die? Water. And how'd he do that? It was pretty rad, right? From the rock. It was a whole big deal, right? Okay, the rock of Horeb. All right, so water is a part of, so if, if we're doing a feast of booze and we're remembering God's provision in the wilderness, one of the things we're going to think about is, boy, God kept us hydrated in the desert. Thank you, God. And they're doing that golden pitcher, pool of Siloam, okay? All right, now, hold that. There was this other ritual. It was the lighting of these giant candles. They were in the temple. There was four of them. Each of these giant candles, one, one commentator I read, it was, they said 75 feet tall. I mean, that's tall. I, I, I don't know, but the bottom line is they were big. The records we have is each, and each, so each one of these things is this giant tower. It's got four bowls coming off of it. Each of those bowls holds 10 gallons of oil. Times, you get 16, that's 160 gallons of oil. And what would happen? They would light these bad boys and, and the temple sat on a hill. So imagine what that looked like at night. Right? It was a big deal. Big glow, everyone in the city would see up on top of the hill this light. This was part of the Feast of Booths, is the lighting of these candles. Okay? What's that got to do with? Well, several things actually. One, God appeared to them as a pillar of fire by night in the wilderness, but then it gets even deeper because when Solomon, when, when the temple got done that Solomon built, okay, what happened? First of all, I'm gonna give you three guesses. I bet you'll only need one. When do you think the completion of Solomon's temple happened and when do you think they decided to dedicate it to the Lord? What do you think was going on? What month maybe? What, what, during what festival possibly? It was the seventh month. It was the Feast of Booths of all the times when the temple could be done and we could dedicate it. It was the Feast of Booths and what happened? Yo, fire from heaven came down at the dedication of the temple. Boom, lit the altar, and the Shekinah glory of God filled the place to such a degree that people couldn't even get into the place, man. They're falling out. That's another reason why, all the way now, fast forward to the first century, they're remembering what God has done. Not only that he was a pillar of fire in the desert, but when the temple was dedicated during the Feast of Booze, the Shekinah glory of God showed up. It's, it, they're reminding them of God's faithfulness throughout their history. Okay? That's, that's what the candles are about. Amen. Okay. You, <laughs> we ain't even got there yet. You understand what I'm talking about? I haven't even showed you what I'm here to show you. All right. So, now, if you, <clears throat> yeah, I want you to do this. So the temple, whether it was the water, it's the candles, the temple was a focal point of the celebration, right? That was the place among the people where God's presence was filled. Now, in this time, the Ark of the Covenant's not there. I'm talking in the first century. You know, it's, it's, it's different. And almost the candles and stuff is almost like, you know, yearly at the Feast of Booths, we're not having the, the, the event that happened with Solomon, right? The Shekinah glory of God's not actually showing up in that way. And so the candles and, 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 the, and the water, it's almost, in some, they're trying to obey and remember, but it's almost kind of a human fill-in in some ways. To, you know, God, the God of light, well, we can make big candles. Maybe we can do something here. At least it'll remind us. All right. Turn with me to John. If you have a Bible, turn, turn with me to John 7. I'm, if, if you got one, that's fine. If you don't, I'll read it to you. It's, it's, it's going to be okay. I got to show you this. Okay. Now, John 7, 
We're going to start in verse two. I'm going to, I'm going to move quick. I'm about to connect some dots for you. Hold everything I just gave you. Where, where'd they get the water? The pool of Siloam, right? What was this other big ritual? It's the, it's the lighting of the candles and all that that represents, okay? And this all happens during the Feast of Booths. And this is when we had this spiritual revival in Nehemiah 8. I'm just talking about God's intricacy, man. I'm talking about the way he weaves stuff together in this undeniable way, okay? All right. John 7, verse 2. <clears throat> now, the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Okay? So that's where we're at in John's account of the gospel. What time is it? Feast of booths time. All right? Month 7. All right? Now, go to verse 14. What happens? But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. The focal point of all of this, all these celebration stuff, is the temple. Where does Jesus go? To the temple. It's the Feast of Booths. Jesus goes to the temple, starts teaching in the temple in verse 14. What is he teaching? What's he on about in the temple? What's Jesus pointing to? What's he talking about? Let's look at verses 37 and 38. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. You think this is an accident? We're not done. We're not done. So, so, so he says that, which ties the whole thing together. The Feast of Booze, we're, we're talking about the water and all that. And even that we're not done. You think like, oh man, that's not that impressive. I'm not done yet. Don't you dare think we're done. Let me show you something. There's more. The next, so, so then everyone goes home. Next day, he's back in the temple again. What's he on about today in the temple? Go to John 8, 12. Look at this. Then Jesus again spoke to them saying, he's in the temple again teaching. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. Okay. Basically what Jesus is saying, you think those giant tortures are cool? Or even, even the, the heavenly fire and the Shekinah glory that came at the dedication of the temple, you think that's cool? Get a load of me. Yeah, buddy. We're not done yet. He did, look. So he, so he drops these two. Clearly, clearly, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing and exactly when he's doing it and why. You see that, surely. This is not a coincidence that it, some of his big statements here is, come to me all who are thirsty, and I'm the light of the world. Totally ties into all the way back what the Feast of Booze was for, the whole deal. It's all tied together. But then he's not done. It's not just teaching in the temple. He then tells them, so if you continue in, right after he says, I'm the light of the world, Jesus goes hard. He's, he then tells them that they will die in their sins unless they believe in him. That's his next big point. His next big point is that he tells them that only by following his word will they ever be free from slavery to sin. That's his next big point. Then he says, he caps it all off with what you would think would be the mic drop moment of this whole kind of deal at the temple during the Feast of Booze. You would think this would be it. When he says to answer them and all of their questions and inquiries, his summary of the thing is, before Abraham was, I am which is the exact thing that God said, right? So when people are like, oh, Jesus never really claimed to be, look, he's doing it right now. 
People that were there that understood what was going on with the Feast of Booths knew when he's talking about living water and God being the provider, they knew what that meant. When he says, I'm the light of the world and God was the source of light, God was the source of glory, people knew what he was saying. And, and just in case they missed it, he used the exact same words God used to describe himself in the Old Testament. He said, I am. What, what does that mean? Oh, just, just that I am, I'm eternal. I just am. You can't say anything else about it. Always have been, always will be. And so when he says that, they try to stone him. They're like, ooh, this guy's making himself out to be God. They knew what he was saying. <laughs> well, we're going to throw rocks at him until he's dead, for sure. That's what we're going to do. What's he do? Slips up out the temple, and the, and, the, and the very next thing that happens, there is no break. Jesus, they try to stone him. He jukes it, walks out the temple, and then what happens? This is right out of 8, chapter 9, verse 1. But Jesus hid himself and went out the temple. There's a chapter break here because someone put him in later. There is no chapter break in the original. The very next words are, as he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that his, this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I'm the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground, made clay of the spittle, and applied the clay to his eyes, and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. That's the mic drop moment right there. Right there, because the, look, man, because in the temple, all the, everyone that was, should have known, they should have seen, all the clues were there, they missed it, and then a blind man saw it. How? How did a blind man get it when all the religious experts couldn't get it? Because self-righteousness and pride makes one foolish and dull of hearing. And a desperate, contrite, humble spirit before God will get exactly what they need from him. Do you think all of that teaching in the temple, God, Jesus specifically saying what he said about being living water and being the light of the world, do you think he did not know he was gonna stroll out of that temple that day and meet this blind man? Does that help you understand what he means when he says, this man was born blind, so the works of God? This is bigger than you ever thought it was. You just thought it was about a blind guy being healed. No, man. First of all, in the same context of the healing, I'm the light of the world. This guy had lived in darkness and now he's going to see. This is totally a picture of spiritual birth. This is totally a picture of what Jesus is coming to do that no one understood he was coming to do. It was always bigger than what they thought it was. But God's plan was there all along. God was not making this up as he went. God put little details all the way along so that it would all tie together. Commanded his people to be doing a, a feast of booths all the way back in Leviticus, knowing that Christ would come to the temple in the seventh month in his day and say, I'm living water, I'm the light of the world, and then step out and heal a blind man with water from the pool of Siloam. Why wouldn't our hearts be ablaze? What? Let's pray. Father, we love you. I'm so overcome.
Lord, by the intricacy of the weaving of your plan, God, help me the next time I'm tempted to doubt you, to remember how incredibly detailed you are, how incredibly powerful you are, how how absolutely involved you are down to the very little details that you are always working for the good of those you love and for your glory, which is also for our good. Your glory is for our good. The more we are convinced of your great worth, that you are worthy to be worshiped, the more we are enamored with you, the less room there is for all the stuff that can breed in lukewarm hearts and can hurt us. Thank you, Lord. It's not narcissism that causes you to want us to have hearts ablaze with passion for you. It's because it's what we were made for, and anything less leads to pain and destruction for us. We were made for passionate, close, real relationship with you. We were made to be swept up into your eternal purposes, not meandering about in the foolishness of our design. Thank you that you're patient with us as we figure that out. Please continue to be. But also, Lord, help us. Help us not settle. Help us not settle for lackluster, false definitions of peace. Lord, help us to be active, aggressive peacemakers for your glory, for the good of your church, for the good of the world. You said, Lord, the world would know there's something different about your people by our love one for another. God, let us just be overcome with that reality and vigilant in our prayers and asking you to help us walk it out. Lord, help us by the power of your spirit to be self-aware. Some of us Lord, my hope today is for, for, these, for these precious people in reading Nehemiah 8, that the same thing that's wrong with me would start to be wrong with them. God, help them to set an expectation in their hearts and minds of, for themselves and, and for them to see what it looks like to have unquenchable passion for your name. And God, it's not something we can stir up ourselves. It's not something we're gonna decide to do. But Lord, at least, at least bring us to a place of asking for your help, of asking for you to stir in us an unquenchable passion for you, for your work in the world, for your fame and glory. You're worthy of that. You're worthy of a people on fire with passion for your name. Thank you. Thank you for all that you've done and are doing. We trust you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.